Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, we discuss the problem of child sexual abuse and what can be done about it. And we, I think, are struggling to this day with trying to have a system that can accommodate all the children that we are seeing that are physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused. Plus, the health hazards facing low-wage workers. What we're finding is that we need to think about the rights workers have in the workplace and whether or not they're able to exercise them in the event that there is a threat to their health. And is there a relationship between mental illness and mass shootings? A person who has a psychiatric disorder is probably much more likely to be attacked or be assaulted by somebody uh, than to be a perpetrator of uh, violence. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we'll examine the health hazards of low-wage workers. Plus, can mental illness really be blamed for the epidemic of mass shootings? But first, all about child abuse and what can be done about it. Well, every year, more than 3 million reports of child abuse are made in the United States, involving more than 6 million children. And we have one of the worst records among industrialized nations, losing an average of between 4 and 7 children every day to child abuse and neglect. Well, here with more about this problem and its somewhat hidden epidemic is Dr. Ann Botash. She's a professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, the medical director of the McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center, and the co-director of the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation Program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Ann. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So child abuse remains a big problem in this country. Explain that. Tell us what's going on. Well, I think if you look at the history of what we know about child abuse, people really ignored the problem for many, many years. And until about the 1960s, it became um, on people's radar as far as being an issue. And even in the medical field, and that's you know where I understand the history from, people started to notice that there were children who had this constellation of, say, for example, fractures, and that, you know, the whole idea of a battered child, and it became the battered child syndrome, and then a constellation of symptoms that fit together, and people started calling it a syndrome, the shaken baby syndrome. And it's not really a syndrome. It's really just the kinds of injuries that you might get from being struck or hit or shaken or whatever the mechanism of trauma is. It's all trauma. And then at the same time, there was also this kind of rise in interest in all the other types of abuse. And uh, we developed a system in the United States of Child Protective Services. And I think the people that developed the idea really didn't have any idea of how common this problem is. Or the magnitude. Right. And, And we, I think, are struggling to this day with trying to have a system that can accommodate all the children that we are seeing that are physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused, um, you know, and in, within those categories, uh, other categories of burns and corporal punishment, excessive corporal punishment, those sorts of things. So when we, just to kind of characterize this, when we talk about child abuse, Help us understand what we mean. I mean, are we only talking about broken bones? I mean, what are the kinds of things we're, we're, we're actually seeing in child abuse? You've alluded to a couple. You said emotional. You said physical. You said sexual. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a false classification to try to separate out emotional abuse from, say, physical or sexual abuse or neglect because emotional abuse is really part of all of those. It's definitely a it, ramification of all of them. Right. You could you could be emotionally abused and not have any of those other symptoms. You might not have a fracture. You might not have been sexually abused. But you could still be in a situation where your mental health is affected by um, a parent or uh, someone who's, you know, in Constantly a position. Constantly belittling you, shaming you. Right. Who's in a position of power that can intimidate you in some way. And so that would be emotional abuse, and and there's lots and lots of subcategories within that. Um, Physical abuse and uh, sexual abuse 
there's a little bit, I think, more knowledge out there about, especially with physical abuse, because kids tend to have outward signs of physical abuse. And if there's a fracture or a bruise or, or you a know, burn or a burn or, or really uh, any kind of injury could be from physical abuse. So it's a little bit easier to define it, to say anything that leaves a mark on a child could be considered physical abuse. And I think you know, sure, you could leave a mark and not um, mean to physically abuse your child. Well, then that's an accident, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very different. fine line. It's a very fine line. It's a fine line, but help us understand that, you know, you, you alluded to corporal punishment, and we've actually done a recent interview um, with one of your colleagues on that whole notion. What, how do you see the distinction between physical abuse and discipline? I mean, in your mind, um, is, are there certain characteristics, whether it be the unpredictability of it or the fact that it's kind of out of uncontrolled on the part of the abuser? I mean, yeah, I, th I think again, it's a gray, a little bit of a gray area. And what we, the way that I think about it, and that's probably the easiest way to explain it, is really related to intent. So if you're attempting to um, change behavior in your child, and you know, you think about it, you're going to try to use some effective method to discipline the child. And what we know in the, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends is that it not be hitting, that hitting actually um, can escalate and lead to physical abuse. And teach aggression. So Right, and it teaches the wrong lesson. So if, if we think about it that way, what are we trying to teach a child, then it, it's not physical abuse. Physical abuse happens more when people... Um, actually many times intend to cause harm because they're trying to teach the child in the wrong way or, or they're really losing their temper and they're really um, not even thinking at all. So in other words, it's, it's kind of unpredictable and maybe intimidating and using their power to really kind of overwhelm a child. And that, that's been my experience, that that's the kind of injuries that we see from physical abuse are related to a parent or, or maybe not a parent, but a caregiver in some way, losing it and overwhelming the child with their strength. Using fear to control behavior, in other words. Fear, fear is a big part of it. Fear is a big part of emotional abuse. Fear is a big part of sexual abuse as well. It's, it's what keeps children silent. They're afraid. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatrician and child abuse uh, specialist, Dr. Ann Botash. We're talking about child abuse. So let's get to sexual abuse. What That can be hidden, in a sense, because you don't have the physical signs and symptoms that you might have. Um, what is the problem, as you, as you alluded to, in terms of this whole notion of child abuse, uh, sexual abuse, in terms of this idea of reporting? There's you know. Well, so most kids um, that are sexually abused that we see, um, it, it depends on the age. Again, you know, everything depends on age in pediatrics. But some of the younger kids are really threatened by their perpetrator for sexual of sexual abuse, and so they don't want to tell what happened I mean, to them. They're being threatened verbally. They're being, being threatened. They're being threatened. They're being told, "If you tell, I'm going to either hurt you or hurt your mom or hurt your siblings or in some way they're being threatened." And so that prevents the disclosure. There are also situations, though, where um, they actually kids may not understand that. It's it's something wrong that's happening to them. They may see it as a game that they're playing with whoever the older person is involved. And they may see it as um, fun and pleasurable because they've, they're not associating it with something bad until they tell someone. And then when they tell someone and we say, oh, <laughs> what happened? You know, or how did that happen? Or who were you with? Then they realize, wait a minute, maybe I wasn't supposed to tell. So there's, you know, kind of the different variations. And then you get to the teenagers who are afraid to tell because they are afraid they did something wrong or they're embarrassed by what happened, a date rape. They, they may feel that they can't tell someone because they can't believe it themselves, you know, what happened. Or that in some way they may have contributed to it. Right. And I think that the contribution that they have is often in their head, you know, that they think they did something to, to cause this, and, and they didn't. It's still a misuse of power, even in, in teenage relationships. So what are some of the effects, the overall effects of any of these kinds of abuse? You alluded to the fact that there's an emotional component to all of them. What do you see in these children? Well, and, and we didn't talk about neglect, but oh, neglect yes. is another category, yes. and, and where you do see that emotional overlay. And, and I think both 
not both, but with all of the types of abuse, the, what happens to a child is that they begin to perceive themselves as uh, not being worthy, that they lose self-esteem, that they, they feel they're um, in some way responsible, but also that it's their fault um, because they're not a good person. And that's what a lot of what we see. And, and it, I think it's the most... Um, it's the most stressful for me in terms of trying to help someone because I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And so I'm doing an exam and trying to help people to feel better physically. But a lot of that physical piece is already healed. And now what's left is the, the mental piece. They Children really need the support of loving parents, you know, hopefully not the people that are involved in the abuse, but parents that are going to listen to them when they need to be listened to, give them the support they need, keep them from danger in the future, and, and not blame them for what happened. So actually, that what, what also is, is a lack of trust or even being able to establish trusting relationships or difficulties in relationships could be a, a, a follow-up to that. I think that that's particularly true for physical abuse and sexual abuse. If, if a for example, a parent is the person who's the abuser. The chi- from the child's perspective, they see this parent as being good and bad. They love this parent, but they also have to figure out and understand how this parent could do something that hurt them. And many times their thought processes for figuring that out makes them um, more confused and, and more anxious and less trustful of other people. And going along with this whole idea of sexual abuse, as you alluded to, quite often it's not a stranger who's engaged in this behavior. It's often someone that they already knew. Either it could be a parent or a close, very close relative, and that has to have some very powerful effects on relationship or trust. I, I think that, you know, having been working in this field for almost 30 years now, I think that this is, you know, the root of a lot of the problems we have you know, in terms of the world, honestly, if you don't develop good relationships, good, strong family relationships from the very beginning of your life, your interpersonal relationships for the rest of your life suffer from from that. And it's very hard um, to, to fix that later in life. And that's why I think it's really important as a pediatrician to try to intervene early to, to provide these children with what they what they need in terms of support so that they have an adult that they can trust trust is so important to any relationship and if you miss that you know that ability to do that it's hard to ever get it back so following up on that as a pediatrician give me some very quick I don't want to run out of time but give me some quick tips of what the warning signs of any of this kind of abuse would be how would you what would you look for if you suspected or what would you be seeing if you suspected emotional abuse, physical abuse, neglect, or sexual abuse? What are some of the things so, you... So neglect is a big category all by itself, and it actually uh, affects the most children. We, When we look at abuse, neglect is the biggest category. Um, and so to recognize neglect could be a category of educational neglect or, or nutritional neglect, and, and it's, it's more specific for, you know, looking or medical neglect, you know, so there's something that you're looking for to in, in order to call it neglect. For emotional abuse, um, I think it's hard to recognize um, what you might see, but emotional abuse actually is, um, is bullying in many ways. And so some of the things that you look for in a child that might be bullied are the same things that you would look for with emotional abuse. So this might be a child who's you know, overly shy and introverted. This might be a child who's fearful. This might be a child who is, you know, unable to perform well in social situations or even in school academically because they're afraid. Sexual abuse, the behaviors can be, um, no, no behaviors whatsoever. I mean, child can be sexually abused and you may not see any symptoms at all, or you may see a child who's got nighttime awakening, child who previously was potty trained, maybe is wetting the bed. You may see uh, a child who suddenly changes behavior, becomes more withdrawn, or becomes uh, sexually acting out. So sexual abuse, again, has its own. And then physical abuse um, can be any combination <laughs> of all of those factors, and it depends how significant um you know, they're injured or hurt. So the little bit of time we have left, you had some tips in terms of what to do. What can people do besides recognizing the signs? Well, I think um, I liked the darkness. I like the darkness to light five steps. And I I like to, I 
I'm looking at them in terms of applying those not just to sexual abuse, but in terms of physical abuse and recognition and protecting children, preventing further abuse. So their five steps are learn the facts. So, you know, that's an awareness. That's what we're doing right here today. We're making sure people understand that this is a common problem. And then, you know, the next minimize opportunity. If you are have any sort of instinct as a parent or a caregiver of a child that this person might not be the right person to leave your child with, go with that. That You don't need any more than that. It's really something that's related to trust. It's an instinct. Um, the third is to talk about abuse with your children. Talk about bullying with your children. Talk about sexual abuse with your children. Use the right words. Try to make it so that they feel comfortable coming to you if something does happen. Then recognizing the signs, which we talked about a minute ago. What are the signs? You know, what could be the signs? They're sometimes very subtle. Sometimes they're just related to a drop in grades at school. So, you know, when things like that happen, it's not always drugs. <laughs> you know, it can be some other reason, and it may be something happening at school, on the school bus, um, with friends next door, or even in your own home um, with um somebody that's related to you and then react responsibly and I think this is key this is something that um, we don't teach people to do very well but when a child comes to you and tells you that something is happening try not to get too you know excited about it that you shut off the flow of information you need to listen and you need to to respond in a way that doesn't make them more fear fearful and that that is going to I think be the most difficult part for many people I want to thank you so much. We've run out of time, but that is an incredible overview of this entire problem, and clearly it is a problem in this country. So hopefully some of your advice will filter down and people will at least know how to begin to recognize this and do something about it. Thank you so very much. My thank guest you. has been Dr. Ann Botash, professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, the medical director of McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center, and the director of the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation Program also at Upstate Medical University. Next up, the health hazards of low-wage workers. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, there's been much written about how one's occupation can affect one's health. And now, a continuing study of low-wage workers in central New York suggests that many suffer from physical ailments and mental health issues as a result of their work. We'll hear with more of all, on all of this is Jeanette Seckler. She's a project manager for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers and also the the lead researcher for the Low Wage Workers Health Project. Welcome, Jeanette. Thanks so much for coming in. Hi, it's my pleasure. So low wage workers are at risk for certain health issues. Explain that. Well, anyone's work um, makes them have various exposures. Some work is more dangerous than others. And what we're looking into is when you think about various occupations that only um, are giving people less than a living wage, they tend to have certain characteristics that cause poor health. And that can range from poor air quality to poor um, ergonomics. We could have physical factors on the job that influence health and also mental factors on the job that influence uh, the worker's health. And so we're in a new economy, we're curious about how the low-wage worker, you know, is impact how it how their work does impact their health. But it's because the jobs are so varied, we have different kinds of exposures. So, what exactly is the low-wage workers' health project? I mean, what is this thing that you're undertaking right now? So, we made a collaborative effort out of the Occupational Health Clinical Center, which is um, centered here in Syracuse. We wanted to um, look into and identify just exactly who are the low-wage workers in our community. We wanted to place their workers within a historical context. We wanted to demonstrate the severity of occupational health problems that the workers are facing. And ultimately, the goals of the project long-term are to create a call for solutions about these occupational health problems, consider the uh, impact of low wages on health, and possibly improve uh, wage rates. Um, and, and really what we're finding is that we need to think about 
the rights workers have in the workplace and whether or not they're able to exercise them in the event that there is a a threat to their health uh, that occurs at work. So this is an ongoing study. Mm -hmm. It's been ongoing for now. How many years? Well, we started thinking about this in 2012, but this we've completed the second year of, of work on this issue. So the mission basically is to identify who these people are, mm-hmm. what types of illnesses they confront, and then to perhaps help promote some changes to the whole en- uh, environment their environment and even the the economy at large mm-hmm. to to um, change the impact. That's of right. Those There's things. a lot of different levels of solutions, you know, immediate solutions and then long term. So, who are these workers? Tell me how you define low wage. Well, for the purposes of what we're interested in, when someone can't make a living wage, we define them as a low wage worker. And of course, it's difficult to put labels and names on these things. But when we go in the community and find people are not able to make it make a living without resorting to government help, then we consider them to be um, not making a living wage. And we use the MIT living wage calculator, which is developed by um, economists who think about this on a local basis. So it's considered for this county. At the time that we were doing the work, um, $14 an hour was the sort of dividing line uh, for a single person actually. So part of what we were looking into was to find out from workers themselves how they felt about this definition and whether or not it matched with their own reality. So we we were able to ask questions about that. So a key factor in some of this was not only the dollar amount, but also perhaps whether they had the need to engage in governmental assistance of some kind. That was another requirement of that definition. So um, how did this study get started, though? Well, for a long time, the Occupational Health Clinical Center has been interested in how occupations change over the course of history. So in our history, we had more manufacturing jobs, and these days we have more of a service-oriented economy. You're talking about now locally in this particular Yeah, locally in in our counties. We do serve 26 counties, but thinking about Onondaga County and the Syracuse area, we wanted to think about some of the national trends we were seeing with de-skilling labor and um, sort of a... Uh, basically a proliferation of lousy jobs or less meaningful or less satisfying jobs um, that that, also have poor conditions associated with them. So those are basically unskilled Mm -hmm. workers. Mm -hmm. Often, yeah. There's not much education required to get into these jobs. There's a lot of temporariness around the jobs that people call it precarious. The work is not steady necessarily. It doesn't lead to a a career path that one might aspire to or have a journey in which there's a profession that's pursued or even a trade or, you know, it's often um, what people think of as a dead end job, right? So there's this, there's this dis disincentive to continue in the, the field, say. You're not really training to apprentice. Very often the work is, um, you know, the, the basic work going on in communities, serving people food. I was going to say, give us, you know, a, give us a couple of examples of you know, those categories. You know, these sectors are, you know, serving people food, serving people in the medical setting, um, moving people around in the hospital, taking care of the laundry inside of a, a medical facility. Perhaps people are going out into homes and caring for the elderly, um, so home health aides. We also have seen um, the lowest end of the construction, so the person who's assigned to help, who just... Um, it's a temporary job, maybe for a, for a short period of time. The uh, firm may need extra help. Um, so there is a temporary nature to these jobs, and sort of a, a low skill uh, oriented fast food um, servers. Of course, the classic would be retail um, cashiers. How about people like house you know, cleaners or office cleaners? Cleaners that type. often as well. Yeah, there's a number of occupations that are um, pretty commonly seen. Um, and so we'll be looking into those more. I mean, also agricultural workers if we get in the rural areas, but within the city we don't see that much. Um, Temporary migrant worker type people. Sure, of course, yeah, out in... If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with public health researcher Jeanette Zeckler, and we're talking about the health problems of low-wage workers. How many workers did you study? 
Well, over two years' time, we've had a chance to interface with over 450 workers in the Syracuse area. The first year, we did a survey in which we asked um, them specific questions about their work. And in the second year, we were able to have conversations with groups uh, around tables and discuss their problems at length. So between the two, I think we got a pretty – we're starting to get a good picture of the kinds of struggles – that the workers are facing on the job with regard to their health and with regard to the entire context of what it means in their lives. So first let's talk about what kind of health problems you found, and then I'd like to talk about what you think contributed to creating those problems. Well, I think what we see overall is a num- uh, you know, a good percentage of people are having symptoms or pain during uh, as a result of their work. So some 30 to 38% of people, depending on how we asked it, reported that they were having symptoms or pain frequently as a result of their work, that they were connecting to their work. Now, this isn't getting them into the doctor's office yet. This is a kind of pain people cope with on the daily basis. So then like when back, we asked about like backaches, oh, absolutely, kind of thing. headaches. Mean, you definitely see the majority of the problems are musculoskeletal, feet aching, knees, shoulders, backaches. There were also headaches. There were um, difficulties breathing. And one of the striking things about this is that people are often having multiple symptoms, not just one. So when you combine a couple of things are hurting or bothering you, um, that sort of um, compounds. And I think when we saw the figure at 17.5% who would, uh, did seek medical attention for their um, either injury or illness that was related to their work. So in our minds, looking at that difference, 38% people saying they're having some problems, but they don't go to the doctor yet. We're thinking we need to find ways to prevent them from needing to seek um, help. It also strikes me that perhaps their lack of access or their lack of um, uh, in finding medical help or seeking medical help could also have to do with either access, whether it has to do with insurance or any other uh, barriers to that. Right, and the barriers that, that people face are very strong with accessing health care, and especially in a situation where you're going to need to use a workers' compensation system, and people are very concerned that they'll seem like a weak employee, and they're very concerned they'll lose their job. And that is a very real problem. There isn't an avenue often in the workplace for finding, you know, bringing the attention to the problem with the employer. So there's not... Um, as much strong pathway. There's not training, you know, about what to do in the event of your health being threatened on the job. Well, that also leads me to this whole notion of, so what are the factors that may be causing these emotional, physical disabilities or problems with the low-wage worker? I mean, you mentioned something like uh, precariousness, so that they don't have a sense of security in the job. The fact that they may not see a future Mm -hmm. in this type of job. But obviously, there are other more physical kinds of things, too, like mm-hmm. perhaps a, a exposure to harmful chemicals, for example, right. or not knowing their own rights. Help us understand right. that. Right. So before we were talking about sort of a big picture, you know, look at, you know, whether or not there's meaning in their lives. Maybe they're having difficulty escaping from poverty and they're feeling disrespect on the job. But the devil's really in the details as you're starting to go down that path. What, what these low-wage workers face, we're finding, is that the hours that they're required to work are uh, very, they vary a lot and they're very unpredictable and often unworkable with uh, family life, especially if people have to work two or three jobs. So there's either too many hours, not enough hours, or constantly shifting around hours, uh, shift work as well. Then so the that phys- whole notion of unpredictability and sure. stress with in terms of making it work with life, so to That's speak. correct, yeah. And then physical conditions, of course, we saw dangerous exposures. We saw people... Um, being exposed to bloodborne pathogens, we we observed you know people telling us about their exposures to dust, animal, um, animal uh, problems. There were others, you know, when you're talking about an office worker who works long hours at a desk, then you have very different exposure problems. And then, of course, very often there's lifting, uh, inappropriate lifting because they're in a rush. And there's a sense that the workers haven't been trained uh, properly to manage the job that they're doing. And there's also mental conditions. Um, Many of the workers report 
uh, coworker mistreatment, workplace bullying, the boss maybe is especially authoritarian, or and one of the most troubling things is that people will report that there's sort of an unknown expectation of what they're supposed to be doing, how long they'll be engaged to do it, and what the work arrangements really are. So and maybe they're not that, sure, you know, where so they stand. So a sense of disempowerment of is course. what I'm hearing. Yeah. And the work arrangements are, are vague often. So many of us would never take a job like this where we might get to stay or leave or, you know, we're not sure what the hours or the rate of pay really is going to be. But people feel pressured to take these kind of conditions. And so those uh, things combine to put people at risk for when there is a physical threat in the workplace. There's a lot of, as you said, disempowerment. They're not able to find a way to speak up or address it themselves. They or put up a, with you know, conditions. It sounds to me like yeah. they may not even be aware of what their rights might be Correct. or what avenues might exist for some kind of a complaint or right. a protest. So people have, you know, uh, experienced wage theft in a number of ways. Almost half, 48%. Wage theft occurs when you're not paid what you're agreed to be paid. And this happens in a number of ways. So. I don't want to run out of time. What do you hope to come from this? You alluded to it in the very beginning mm -hmm. of our conversation that you thought that something would change in our community. Tell us about your hopes. Well, I think that the, we'll be looking at this in a sustained way over time because there are short and middle and long-range goals that we can have. The short-range goals are that our um, Occupational Health Clinical Center has staff on hand who can create educational um, opportunities for low-wage workers, and we'll be addressing some of the needs that were raised. But middle-range and long-term, we need policies that change the way uh, work and the quality of jobs uh, in our communities are developed. And right now you're going to be meeting with the governor coming up at some point to talk about some of these issues and hope that there may be some some policy changes as a mm -hmm. result. Yes, the governor has an exploitation of workers. He's concerned about this. He has a task force that he's calling together, and we've been helping figure out some problems, solutions. Thank you so much, Jeanette. My guest has been Jeanette Zeckler. She has been the lead researcher in the um, Low Wage Workers Health Project and was kind enough to come in and share all this very interesting and important research with us. Thanks again. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up. Halloween, what you gonna be, or truth and consequences. Well, folks, about 20 years ago, I was in a quietly fierce competition with colleagues for who'd succeed the aging leader. We were finishing a two-day board meeting and picking dates for the next in six months. The leader suggests Halloween weekend, votes. Now, my kids were in single digits then, and Halloween was second holiday fave right after Christmas for the whole family. What you going to be this year? How are we going to make that? Who's going to ring this bell? Nobody else on the board had kids, then anyway, and lots of them had never. Works for me, good with me, okay with me, fine, sure, yeah. So, no luck hoping it wouldn't work for somebody else. Rich, how about you? Thump, 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 thump. Pammy and our boys would be really bummed if I wasn't there, I knew. But I was worried saying no might knock me from the top three or four or even totally out of the race. Should I try, sorry, got a family w uh, wedding that weekend? Who are you going to be, Rich? Well, Rich, does that work for you? Uh, well, uh, my kids really love Halloween, and I want to be there. So that weekend isn't good. Silence. Darth Vader silence. <laughs> Turns out I needn't have worried. It definitely knocked me back big time. In fact, just recently... 20 years later, the leader brought up my choice again, still exasperated and irritated. So now, in the top 10, maybe. But I loved dumping the bags on the floor. 
seven Hershey's Kisses, three small Snickers, 14 Smarties, six baby Milky Ways. And I loved the squabbly horse train. And I loved the, please, 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 just one more treat before bed, Dad. Sure, go for it. Yay! <laughs> the truth for me, there are only a few Halloweens in our lives. And there are an infinite number of committee meetings to vie for the top dog costume. The real treat, watching our two boys growing in super slow-mo through masks and swords and robes and wands, then exploding into wonderful young men. I'm Dr. Rich. Who are you going to be? O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, mental illness and its linked to mass shootings. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, with the rash of mass shootings like the ones we've seen in the past several decades in this country and the call for gun control measures to combat this seeming epidemic, the national conversation often focuses on mental illness as the central cause. In fact, 80% of the population believes that mental illness is at least partially to blame for such incidents. But what do we actually know about the connections between mental illness, mass shootings, and gun violence overall? Well, joining us by phone from his office with more insight and opinion on this crucial question is Dr. Ronald Pies, professor of psychiatry and lecturer on bioethics and humanities at Upstate Medical University and clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Pies. Thanks very much, and it's good to be here. It's good to have you again. So what is the relationship, in your eyes, between mental illness or psychiatric disorders and violence? Well, it's a complicated question, uh, Linda. I I would say as a short response, um, and at the risk of sounding a little like Larry David, uh, the link between violence and mental illness is pretty, pretty weak. Um, There really is... I think no good evidence showing that uh, mental illnesses, so-called, or psychiatric disorders uh, are uh, closely linked with uh, violence of of any kind. In fact, um, a person who has a psychiatric disorder is probably much more likely to be attacked or be assaulted by somebody uh, than to be a perpetrator of uh, violence. Uh, Just to give you two quick statistics, Uh, Patients with severe mental illness uh, commit probably only around 1 in 20, roughly 5% of violent crimes in this country, 5%, uh, and about 10% of homicides have been attributed to uh, people who have a psychiatric uh, disorder or mental illness. Most of those uh, people who who have been uh, linked with homicide and who have a psychiatric disorder are people who have a a substance abuse disorder as well uh, or who are not being adequately treated. So that's uh, a quick response uh, to your question. Do you think that most violence in the society is caused then by other things other than this whole notion of mental illness? I do. I I think we place a lot of emphasis on that because uh, we get uh, news reports of these very sensational horrific um, shootings, uh, so-called mass shootings, and um, the press uh, begins to put out information that the uh, person accused of it was seeing a a psychotherapist or psychiatrist, something like that. We don't really learn very much about the person. Uh, We don't look at the many, many other causes of violence uh, that, that contribute to those behaviors. When you factor out comorbid substance abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, when you factor that out of the equation uh, and also factor in whether the person who has a psychiatric disorder is being adequately treated, uh, most of the links between uh, 
so-called mental illness and violence really start looking very dubious. But how about this whole notion? I mean, part of what you mentioned and alluded to is that it's looked for or there's an attempt to try to link it, especially in these mass shootings, because many of us can't really get our arms around understanding how something that horrific could happen. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question I have is, do you see it, psychiatric illness, as a major factor in these types mass shootings? Well, it's very hard to know, uh, Linda, because we don't have good uh, mental status exams or psychiatric evaluations of the people who have been accused or convicted of these crimes. Some of them end up uh, dead before right. anyone can talk to them. What we, what we can say is that there is a growing consensus that if you look at mass shooters, people who are involved in shootings of, let's say, more than four people, um, they tend to have some traits that, that stick out, such as feeling socially rejected, feeling bullied, uh, feeling depressed or suicidal. Some of them have narcissistic personality traits. Some of them are very preoccupied with violence and death and, and firearms. Uh, uh, those, those traits seem to be emerging, but uh, that's not necessarily to say that they have psychiatric disorders. Um, there are a lot of people out there who feel socially rejected and bullied, and they don't all become mass shooters. So there are other factors going on, uh, and we don't have an easy way of studying those in most cases. What, what's your thought about, given the fact that some of these characteristics may be in common, or I won't say universal, but seem to be in common have these these individuals have these in common. Do you think there's some way we can be predicting this whole notion of a mass shooting, given that information? Uh, in a word, no. I don't think we can be in the business of trying to predict who is going to become a mass shooter. Uh, in fact, uh, in an editorial recently, a Dr. Uh, Matthew Goldenberg, uh, uh, in an editorial, I think, in the Los Angeles Times, said that finding uh, somebody who is going to be a, a mass shooter is like finding a piece of hay in a haystack. So it's not even a needle in a haystack. And that's because, for the most part, uh, the people who end up doing these things um, look and sound and act pretty much like most other people most of the time. Um, and profiles that are designed to sort of detect them, uh, questionnaires and so on, tend to to have a lot of false positives. In other words, bringing in many people who may be socially rejected and bullied and, and preoccupied with violence, but who will never, ever do anything violent at all. And that's the problem with trying to predict these things. What we can do is put people in high or low risk categories. And that's something that doctors, uh, mental health professionals can be involved in. And what would that be based upon? That would be based on factors that we know are associated with um, violence in general, not necessarily mass shootings, but factors that we know are associated with violence in general. Uh, for example, a history of past violence. That's probably the best predictor. So instead of looking for folks who have been diagnosed with, let's say, schizophrenia, uh, we might better spend our time looking at uh, folks who have been involved in barroom brawls or who have been involved in domestic uh, violence and those those do not necessarily indicate a psychiatric disorder in the formal sense. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here, along with psychiatrist Dr. Ronald Pies. We're talking about the relationship between violence, gun violence, and mental illness. So basically, you're feeling at this point we can't necessarily predict those kinds of horrific occurrences. But how about predicting violent behavior? I mean, what do you see as the risk factors for future violence, for example? Well, if you look at, for example, risk factors for violence in adolescence, um, we do have some fairly well-established risk factors, a history of prior criminal acts, uh, gang men membership, uh, poor social skills, uh, poor school performance, um, how about uh, substance abuse? Substance abuse is, is, a, is a risk factor for violence in general. Now, 
violence covers a lot of territory. Sometimes we talk about episodic or impulsive violence versus targeted violence, so-called predatory violence that is often the case with these mass shootings. So the factors that I just rattled off are general factors for violence, and that doesn't tell you uh, the kind of violence it is. There's a big difference between a kid who uh, throws a punch in the locker room and somebody who spends six months planning a mass shooting. Right. And do you think that um, some of some another factor that plays a role or that needs to be looked at is the environment in which children find themselves? So in other words, if they exist in an environment that has a high degree of violence, that could also be a contributing factor. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, among the risk factors for violence in general in adolescence is uh, living in a high crime uh, neighborhood or living in a severely disadvantaged uh, neighborhood. Um, also, uh, the school's tolerance of bullying. There does seem to be a correlation between schools that tolerate bullying and um, uh, risk of um, violence in uh, adolescence. And again, uh, this does not necessarily uh, translate into risk factors for these so-called mass shootings. We're talking about uh, violence in general, and that could be anything from throwing a punch uh, in a football game to uh, you know knocking over a desk. So violence is a very, very broad umbrella term. But this whole notion of risk factors for violence seems to be something that we could be looking at mm -hmm. and that even patients with or individuals with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia who have not shown any of those risk factors in fact have very low rates of violent behavior. Right. Folks who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in general, if they're being adequately treated, if they're not also abusing substances, really have uh, rates of violence that are generally comparable to uh, most of the uh, public. Now, um, you know, we certainly can be looking for the kinds of uh, factors that I rattled off in what you just said, and, and I think teachers can work uh, hand-in-glove with mental health professionals and, and physicians on saying, you know, I think uh, Joey has these risk factors and I'm kind of worried about him. Uh, but that's different than being able to predict that Joey is going to do something violent. I think it's a matter of how we uh, sort of use our resources. So what role do you think, and this is, I know this is kind of a can of worms, but what role do you think gun control could play in preventing these horrific crimes? Well, that's a very controversial topic, and it, it gets us into the whole area of the Second Amendment and um, uh, gun rights, uh, so-called gun rights. Um, and uh, I can just give you my personal view on that, and I, I, do, I do understand that this tends to get people quite uh, stirred up, um, mainly because they start thinking about extreme measures like confiscation of guns and, and the like. And, of course, uh, nobody in the public health or mental health field is really talking about that. My own view is that we're not likely to make much progress uh, in terms of getting gun-related violence under control until we get the firearms issue under control in this country. In terms of access, you mean? In terms of access, in terms of uh, background checks, in terms of amount of uh, ammunition and guns that can be purchased. You know, we have homicide rates in this country that are nearly seven times higher than rates in other high-income countries, and that's driven mostly by firearm homicide rates, which are about 20 times higher in this country. Uh, we're never going to get to all the people who are at risk, um, and I personally believe that we do need to get the firearms uh, access under better control. In the very little bit of time we have left, what other measures do you think we could undertake to prevent these horrific acts from occurring? Well, again, I wouldn't focus on the horrific acts in terms of mass shootings, so, and I would focus on the daily uh, carnage uh, in the streets that nobody reports on. And, you know, by the time we finish this phone call, probably uh, 10 or 12 people will have been shot, either uh, homicide or suicide in this country. I think we need to focus more on those uh, issues and what we can do to reduce uh, violence in, in that group than uh, focus uh, on these very sensational mass shootings. And do you think that the sensational reports on the part of the uh, media 
play a role here? I think it may play some role. I think we give entirely too much publicity and uh, play to the shooters. I think we should be focusing more on the communities as they grieve and come together, uh, as we did after Sandy Hook, uh, the shootings there. I do not think we should be uh, making uh, uh, stars out of the people who are accused or convicted of these crimes. Yes, because clearly there can be copycats and all the like. Indeed. Thank you so very much. Very, very insightful, very um, important opinion. My guest has been Dr. Ronald Pies. He's professor of psychiatry and lecturer on bioethics and humanities at Upstate Medical University, and he's a clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. Once again, thanks for being with us, Dr. Pies. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Michael Dougherty is a physician at University Hospital. He enjoys writing poetry in his very limited spare time. Here is his short poem, Bittersweet. I don't have a touching family moment or a specific sentiment. It's always a time that I see you shaking your head and rolling your eyes exactly like you told me not to. It's not that I miss you. It's day drinking and dialing at 2.48 p.m. to let you know that I was thinking of you and hoping your day was okay. It's not that I love you, but the hope that your kids treated you well and the possibility that I might have crossed your mind in the middle of this sunny afternoon. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we get an update on bipolar disorder and what it means to have this condition, plus abnormal uterine bleeding, what you need to know. And Americans appear to be eating less, so are we done with obesity? If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.